0: Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRober, and I wish you peace and love, dudes. So, this week I'm talking to Gwendolyn Keist about her new novel, Reluctant Immortals, which takes some of the great, iconic characters of gothic fiction and plants them in California in 1968. And as you'll hear, things are not at all groovy, baby. Apart from stripping away the myths about the summer of love, which it turns out was Pretty grim, actually. We also discuss Hollywood as a haunted place. We get into the relationship between vampires and sex. And we talk about how Gwendolyn uses intertextuality to promote some intersectionality. Now, I will just say, in the back half of this conversation, we talk a lot about domestic abuse and sexual abuse. And I'm aware these can be triggering topics. And I just wanted to say this here and now so that everyone can have a nice day. Remember, you can support this show by joining Patreon. You'll get bonus episodes every week or so, and they range from extra chat with the authors to deeper dives into horror topics. It keeps food in my cupboards and stops my wife leaving me. <laughs> and you can sign up at patreon.com talkingscaredpod talking scared pod. But now, come with me to the sunny streets of San Francisco, where flowers in your hair and garlic around your neck. Let's talk Scared. Hi Gwendolyn and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you?
1: Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, as ever, it's a delight, particularly in this case, because it's such a fun book. Um, We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, where are we speaking to you from?
1: I am south of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania.
0: I didn't know that. I thought you were Ohio because of, I think maybe Russ Maidens misled me in that regard. You're in Pittsburgh. I grew up
1: in Ohio. I'm, I'm, I'm from Ohio originally. And honestly, like Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, they like border Ohio. So a lot of people are like, they're so different. And I'm like, they are different, but they're pretty similar in a lot of ways too.
0: <laughs> okay. I had a whole Ohio spiel to go. But I mean, Pittsburgh really is becoming kind of the epicenter of the horror scene at the moment. There's so many big names coming out of that place, all the surrounds.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, the, the next Stoker Con is in Pittsburgh, right?
1: Mm-hmm, yes.
0: Yeah, that seems quite fitting. I'm very Pittsburgh-minded myself at the minute because I'm currently obsessed by the TV show This Is Us. I don't know if you've watched that.
1: I haven't.
0: Couldn't be less horror. It's this soapy melodrama thing that is just <laughs> destroying my emotional stability. And it, it's very Pittsburgh-centric. So You know,
1: I didn't actually know it was set in Pittsburgh till just now. But I noticed that they were always talking about it on like local news. And I thought, why is our local news really into this show? This is us. That seems strange. And now you've just filled in a blank for me. I had no idea it took place in Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah, I know <laughs> a lot about the Steelers just from watching that show. So, yeah. <laughs> (laughs) um anyway that that's a weird segue into American sentimentalism let's talk horror I'm delighted to have you on the show to talk about your new novel Reluctant Immortals because well I really enjoyed it and I I do love me a bit of intertextuality as well Mm. um we can get into all of that stuff but the book is out today August 23rd um so at this point I suppose over to you for an introduction to this story
1: Yes, so Reluctant Immortals is the story of the forgotten women of gothic literature. Lucy Westenra from Dracula and Bertha Antoinette Mason from Jane Eyre. And they are the reluctant immortals of the title. They're living as the undead in 1960s California during the summer of love. And Dracula and Edward Rochester make a very sudden and shocking return to their lives. And so that's the horror adventure that we're really following in this book.
0: Yeah, and I I know that you've written previously about both Lucy and Bertha, or or B, as she's called, in this story. Mm-hmm. You wrote about them in, in a pair of short stories. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, I suppose to start off, a little bit whatever, about those stories and, and what was the route from them to this novel?
1: So the first, I think the one that was published first was uh, The Eight People Who Murdered Me excerpt from Lucy Westenra's diary. It came out in Nightmare Magazine in November 2019, I believe. And it won the Stoker Award for short fiction, for achievement in short fiction. And it's probably my favorite short story I've ever written. It just, I, I've always loved the character of Lucy so much in Dracula. And I never really felt like she quite got her due in any of the adaptations. And I always just wanted to know more about it. And I always say, you know, write the story you want to read. So that that's really what I did. And that story takes place, you know, at the same time period as Dracula. And it's her writing in her diary about all the people that she sort of blames for, for why, why she ended up, uh, you know, a vampire and, and ultimately staked after that. And so that's really, you know, the sort of the starting point for Reluctant Immortals. But around the same time, I also wrote a short story called The Woman Out of the Attic. It was sort of like a pastiche of this mad woman in the attic trope that, that appears and reappears in Gothic literature in particular, because I always, like, really wanted more from the perspective of that woman in the attic character. And there is the book White Sargasso Sea. So it's definitely been, you know, there has been some reclamation of the mad woman in the attic trope. But it just feels like that that's still a conversation we can have a lot more of. So I wrote that story and it came out in a flame tree anthology. And... From there, I just really wanted to write more about both of those characters. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to set it in the same time period because I felt like I'd already done that with the short stories. And so then it just really felt like what was a really tumultuous time that would have been a very interesting point for these characters to live in. And the 1960s just very much is is an era that I've always been fascinated by and attracted to. So, yeah, that's how it all sort of came together.
0: Well, I've read The Eight People Who Murdered Me. I haven't read Women Out of the, the Woman Out of the Attic, but I, I've read The Eight People Who Murdered Me. And interestingly, I, well, I read it again before this interview because I thought, do I remember it properly? And the story ends with Lucy travelling to Carpathia, to Transylvania, in pursuit of Dracula with slightly ambiguous intentions. Um, <laughs> and, and that seems quite similar to the brief, bit of backstory given in reluctant immortals Mm -hmm. so my question I suppose if it even matters is are these the same characters from your previous stories or have you recreated them anew for this new time and this new context
1: I feel like with Lucy it really is a continuation more of that short story I do feel like, you know, like you said, like where it ends is sort of what the backstory picks up with in Reluctant Immortals. With The Woman Out of the Attic, I really kind of took just bits and and, and pieces of it. it I, there's definitely things that that connect to Reluctant Immortals, but it, I wouldn't say it's Reluctant Immortals as a direct sequel to that story. I feel like that story, like I said, was a little bit more of a pastiche. It wasn't necessarily, it was Jane Eyre, but it wasn't necessarily Jane Eyre. It was kind of just playing with this idea that that we see this kind of, first wife in gothic literature that sort of hangs over the story being like this, you know, source of malevolence. And so I feel like it, reluctant immortals is an extension of that story, but maybe not a direct sequel. Whereas I kind of think eight people who murdered me and it is the prequel to reluctant immortals in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. The, the tone of voice is very similar between mm-hmm. the Lucy and that sorry and the Lucy in, in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's a great bit in this novel that made me, actually smile where where lucy sort of says i was never a very good victorian and (laughs) and there's always this sense that she was always too modern for Mm -hmm. the era that she was living in so it kind of really works to move her forward into this high ashbury 1968 summer of love
1: yeah that was something i always thought about with lucy is that i always felt like she was like if you were looking at sort of like a slasher movie, she's like the really fun friend who, of course, gets killed before the final girl. And Mina is the final girl. It's a very, very recognizable dynamic that they have. And it always felt like, you know, Lucy's just, she's she's more of a party girl. She more has fun with things. She has more enjoying life. Whereas Mina's a little bit more, you know, quiet, a little bit more stoic than than Lucy. So yeah, it really did feel like, Putting her in the 1960s wasn't maybe as unnatural as as it would be for a lot of characters from Victorian literature.
0: Yeah, I mean Lucy gets slut-shamed in Dracula. She, like you say, she's the mm-hmm. the, the fun girl, you know, and it mm-hmm. in that way that Victorian men felt really really conflicted about, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, she she definitely was.
0: I mean that that brings to the, the obvious first question then because from the long list of overlooked mistreated women of gothic literature what was it about these two that so demands your attention that you've written about them not just once but several times
1: yeah you know it's interesting i i just their stories in particular, you know, I think I came to both Jane Eyre and Dracula when I was fairly young. Dracula when I was very young, I probably knew you know of the Dracula story by the time I was three, four, five years old. I mean I feel like you know we I grew up in a very horror centric household, so mm-hmm. I don't remember first learning about Dracula in general. But I do remember my mom ordering like special ordering this annotated Dracula from my dad from England, which is like a big deal back in like the this would have been the late 80s, early 90s, because it was like it was hard to get special orders back then, especially we came from a small town. So that was like a big deal. And I remember when it arrived, it was like this big event that this this version annotated version of Dracula, you know, arrived at the house. And I asked, you know, more specifics about the story and had, you know, Mina and Lucy explain to me that, you know, Lucy dies and Mina lives. And I, I remember even as this like little kid, I'm like, why does Lucy have to die? Like right away, like this was like my first reaction. Like, I don't understand that. She should be allowed to live too. <laughs> and so I feel like right then when I was like maybe five, maybe six years old, it was like the beginning of of this story because I always wanted better for Lucy. And then with Jane Eyre, I saw the film version first the one with Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine and I remember like in that version Bertha is literally just an extra who's kind of in the shadows in the attic like you never actually get to really see her I don't believe that the actress who played the role is even credited in the movie and so it's like she's such an important part of the story and yet she's very often not given very much time so it was just both of those stories. I, I love Dracula and I love Jane Eyre. I love both of the original stories, but I always wanted to know more about those characters. So I think it was a kind of combination of of loving the original story so much, but then feeling like certain characters didn't get kind of justice done for them. So kind of wanting to do that.
0: That makes sense. And they make a great pair as well, because, well, as this conversation goes on, I'm going to delve more into the, the kind of social metaphor of a lot of it, because there's a lot going on under the surface. But right up top you've got lucy who is a very strong-minded angry woman um <laughs> with, with with good cause um who, and, and she is a mistreated and forgotten woman you know she's very much sort of a figure of you know a figure of feminism i suppose in the book and then you've got bertha or b who is you know of mixed race uh, she's mm-hmm. creole she's also queer and it feels mm-hmm. like in just these two characters picked from gothic literature, you've managed to create this intersectional kind of web, in a in a way that you're dealing with. You can you, They're quite an efficient way to deal with a lot of problems <sighs> befalling, you know, women and, and particularly female bonds mm-hmm. throughout history.
1: Yeah, you know, and that felt to me like a, a part of why they were mistreated in the original stories. And that just felt, you know, very much like something I, I did want to talk about as an author, mm-hmm. because as much as these were problems sort of in the Victorian era in the eighteen hundred, you know, there are still very much problems now. And so it seemed like something that that, you know, I could really talk about and you can frame it. You know, these are Victorian women in the 1960s, but a lot of these issues are still the same to this day. So being able to talk about that.
0: Yeah, well, I've got a lot to ask about the contemporary framing as well. That's the bulk of what I want to talk to you about. But <laughs> but the other thing that's really interesting, particularly with my background, because I'm fascinated by all this stuff, is the intertextuality. I just mentioned intersectionality, but to be clear, now intertextuality, the relationship between texts. Mm-hmm. Um. At one point, I hope this isn't a spoiler, at one point, B has a conversation with Jane Eyre about, quote, that book with your name on it. (laughs) So it's very clear that within the universe of reluctant immortals, the source novels, Dracula and Jane Eyre, definitely exist as artefacts. I don't really have a specific question except that that seems a tricky thing to navigate.
1: <laughs> you know, that was interesting because I feel like when I first started, you know, when I, I, I mapped out the story and that was still a question at the very beginning. And it's like, am I going to acknowledge Dracula and Jane Eyre as existing or are they not going to exist in this world? Part of it came down to the fact that especially Dracula is so part of the cultural consciousness that it's hard to. For me to imagine what it would be like without having Dracula as kind of our understanding of, you know, what what is a vampire? That's our main sort of way to understand what a vampire is. So it would be harder to be able to even explain, you know, that this is a vampire to to the people within the story. The other thing, and this is probably not the most artful uh, reason for doing it, is I actually thought... Can I imagine a world in which Christopher Lee didn't play Dracula? And I'm like, (laughs) I can't live with that world. Like that world made me too sad. So I decided to really just lean into it and kind of go all in and say, all right, let's actually acknowledge this. If it's about these women and they're deleted from their stories, let's make these stories even bigger than just them, rather than it's just like, these are two women who were deleted from their own narrative in, in their, you know, version of real life. What if there's just this whole narrative in all of, you know, pop culture and cultural consciousness that also deletes them? And that kind of was able to then speak to 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 the actual, you know, what actually happened to these characters, you know, in in literature. And so it seemed once I kind of decided to lean into it, it seemed like there was no other way to write it. And that always feels good as, as a writer when you when you make a choice and then you're like, "Oh, I can't even imagine having not made that choice." I I like that kind of meta, you know, when you're acknowledging things because it's like, what When I watch something and nobody knows what a vampire is or nobody knows what a werewolf is in horror, I'm always like, I mean, obviously you could live in a world like that. And that's certainly a choice you can make. But because we all know what it is so much, it makes it so you have to spend time with characters getting to know a concept that everybody else is like looking at their watch like, oh, we already know what this is. This is just for the sake of the characters. And I definitely didn't want that to happen.
0: Yeah, having watched Rick Grimes wander around without saying the word zombie for like 10 seasons, <laughs> you know, I'm quite, I'm quite glad that we just got to grips with the vampire at early doors because it, it does, it gets a little bit torturous, doesn't it, when you're trying to like the, the contortions you have to go through so that mm-hmm. people don't understand these concepts. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask would this book work for somebody? who hasn't read the originals. But then it struck me, actually, for reasons we can go into, that maybe Reluctant Immortals is actually about the extent to which Dracula and Jane Eyre can't really be trusted as sources in the first place. So whether you've read them or not doesn't really matter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that element to it. I did try to... Go into it thinking, you know, most people are going to have an idea of what a vampire is, an idea of Dracula, but they might not know the specific story. And with Jane Eyre, I think some people, I think a lot of people have heard of like that mad woman in the attic trope, but they may not know the exact story. So I did try to work that in a little little bit throughout without it kind of hopefully bogging down the story. And I, I have... Talked to somebody, you know, who recently interviewed me who said that he did not know Jane Eyre at all and didn't feel like he, he was lost at any point because I I tried to not only address the story, but then also within Reluctant Immortals address like, here's what happened in that, you know, that book with your name on it when she's talking to Jane Eyre, but then also kind of subverting that and saying, well, that's not what really happened. In some ways, these books were propaganda. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the victors write history. And that's kind of what, you know, in, in yes. Reluctant Immortals that is has happened. Dracula and Jane Eyre, within the context of this book, were written by the people who sort of won. And now we're seeing it through the people who didn't.
0: So I'm, I'm getting really in the weeds now. And, and I'm sorry, listeners, you may not actually care about this, but I love these little knotty problems. So <laughs> Jane actually says of the book that they aren't her words that he Mm -hmm. meaning rochester got a hold of them first Mm -hmm. so yeah there's there's that degree of patriarchal power that is actually Mm -hmm. a massive theme in this book that Mm -hmm. he's basically overwritten her narrative Mm -hmm. but where are we supposed to think that charlotte bronte comes into all of this or does it just not matter
1: (laughs) that is something that i i very much thought of like what does that mean about you know bram stoker and charlotte bronte I kind of not. Yeah, I would say maybe don't think about that. That's like this one place that I I agree because I thought of that, too. I thought that kind of deletes them from their own story. But, you know, in some ways, that's what um, the Haunting of Hill House adaptation did with Shirley Jackson. They made it so that the, the, the the one brother is actually the author of the Haunting of Hill House. So it's kind of like there's definitely correlates to making that choice. But I agree, there is something there that it's kind of like in a way sort of deleting Stoker and Bronte from that that narrative. So perhaps that becomes, like you said, its own kind of thorny problem.
0: Well, actually, speaking of cinematic or televisual adaptations, that's a thing in this book because there's this whole sense then of distorted story. You know, what is the truth? Who tells mm-hmm. the story? Mm-hmm. Um, these people being elided from their own narratives and things. Is that why you set significant parts of it in Hollywood and in a drive-through cinema, nonetheless, (laughs) to emphasise that idea of the technical and myth overwhelming the truth.
1: Definitely. That was that was something else that it was like when I was thinking, you know, which way am I going to go with how meta this is going to get? I already knew it was going to be set in California in 1967 during the summer of love. I knew San Francisco was going to be a really big setting. And from there, it really felt natural then to have them start somewhere else, to have them start elsewhere. And and from there, it was obvious to me to, to go to Los Angeles, to go to Hollywood. And in particular, Hollywood was a really interesting kind of phase at that point, it was kind of getting a little run down. Like it, the, the book starts at the Hollywood sign and the Hollywood sign was a mess back then. Like it, it they, they actually had this big campaign to like redo the Hollywood sign because it, it just was all decayed by that point in the sixties. So when it's talking about it, like just kind of like almost like flapping in the wind, it really was. So there was all this very Gothic decayed feel to Hollywood as a town at that point. And even in some ways sort of metaphorically, because it hadn't really gotten its footing back from television. You know, everybody was like, Oh, television is just going to be kind of like this, this fad. And then it didn't. And mm-hmm. so Hollywood was kind of like at this place that, you know, we weren't yet into that kind of new auteur cinema that kind of came about in the 1970s. So it was kind of at this place where it's like, you know, it, it felt very gothic as well. So that, that made a lot of sense to me, you know, to, to set it there and then have them travel to San Francisco later in the book. Parts of it are at a drive in and having their, Their mansion is very much based on the Sunset Boulevard mansion from the Billy Wilder movie. And, you know, having all of these references to kind of decayed Hollywood, being there, you know, and that that reflecting the fact that these stories, you know, are often known. Many people come to Dracula and Jane Eyre first through the films, even before the books.
0: Yeah, and as you say, it is the it's the waning years of the studio system, and it's mm-hmm. like I think six sixty nine, the year later, we got Easy Rider, which is often seen as the mm-hmm. start of that yep. new, you know, yep. renegade cinema thing, um, mm-hmm. raging. But there's a famous book called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's a great, <laughs> great coverage of that period in, in Hollywood history. Um, you mentioned the mansion actually. Just out of interest, it's called the Dahlia Mansion. Is that a reference to the Black Dahlia murders? That's all I could think.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, yeah, Dahlia Hall later on. That's, um, yeah, that, that's the, the house in San Francisco. Yes, it's definitely a reference to, to the Black Dahlia. I've actually written a short story from her perspective, too, that was on an anthology, I believe last year. And so, yeah, I wanted, cause, you know, that's also part of Hollywood history. That's very much something that I feel like even now, even though it's been, wow, a long time, I think it's been like, Oh, not quite 100 years yet since since that happened, but getting close, I think about 80 years since that happened. But it's very much a part of all those, you know, all those women who, who go to Hollywood with these big dreams. And a lot of people don't get those dreams and, and kind of reflecting that in, in what happens to to be and Lucy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you describe Hollywood at one point as a town full of dead girls and dead dreams. Yeah. Um, I- I'm fascinated by Hollywood as a setting for horror. And mm-hmm. I- I'm repeating myself a little bit, but it's been a while since I said this last time. So listeners, go with me. I, I interviewed Kim Newman um, back in, about a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, the guy wrote Anno Dracula and all that stuff. And it's just dawning on me now how much there is a bit of comparison between you and him because. He wrote Anno Dracula, which is one of these books that takes, you know, all these famous characters from literary history Mm -hmm. and puts them together in the way that you've done. Uh, And he also wrote a book. The the book I spoke to him about was called Something More Than Night, which was about Mm -hmm. um, a fictionalized version of Bela Lugosi um, teaming up with Raymond Chandler. Um, yeah. In order to basically take on these kind of proto-fascist type characters, it's like, kind of like an intentional B movie, but using these people from within that that particular zeitgeist. And um, and I spoke to him at length about how creepy Hollywood is because it was always haunted, even when it was new. It was it looked like a haunted house. Everything is fake. Mm-hmm. Everything is mm-hmm. like a charade, and you can't trust mm-hmm. anything. And it feels like those two books, yours and his are like bookends were mm-hmm. his was his haunted houses were gleaming, and your haunted houses are are run down and, and fallen apart and it, mm-hmm. y- there is something oddly and uniquely creepy about west Coast sunlit horror.
1: <laughs> I think so. I actually really like well-lit gothic horror because I think the, you kind of lean into this idea of like, oh, it's going to be, you know, very mm-hmm. foggy and dark. But I, I love the idea of setting it in something very, very bright. It's it's jarring. It, it catches you off guard.
0: Yeah. And, and you've mentioned now a couple of times about you always knew it was going to be 68, The Summer of Love and San Francisco. And, and the book is split very much between LA and San Francisco, which feel like two different camps, um, Mm. you know, and, and two very different worlds. So I suppose I want to give you a chance to elaborate on that. Why did you pick that period and that place?
1: You know, I always thought the summer of love was so interesting. And, you know, I always thought it took place during the summer of Woodstock, which was 69, but it, it took place two years earlier. And I remember being a kid and being like, oh, this!" I didn't realize that this was a separate thing. I thought the summer of love was the summer of Woodstock, and it wasn't. And I remember, you know, when I was researching the 1960s, when I was like a teenager, because I just thought it was such a such an interesting time. And it's felt so different from what I was living maybe in the nineties or early odds. Now I actually feel like we're living through something much more akin to the 1960s here, at least in America as to how politically, you know, a lot of political unrest and a lot of people really pushing for, you know, social change against a lot of odds right now. And so now I feel like we're living more through an era like that. But at the time I didn't feel that way. And so it was, you know, really researching that time period and just finding it so, so fascinating. And then with like, I like how you said it's almost like the two camps. It's like Los Angeles at that time period was very different than, than uh, San Francisco at that time period, even though they're, you know, only about a six hour drive away from each other. And which was a big thing as I was writing the book to actually know how many miles and ha- try to figure out how many like times they stop for gas, because I had a couple people initially be like, they need to stop for gas more. And I'm like, Yeah, they probably do, but they don't have a lot of money. So I had to constantly like figure out how they would have enough money to even be able to make the drive back and forth, because they do drive a decent bit. It's definitely like it's a little bit of a road book, you know, road trip adventure book in some ways. But yeah, you know, I thought it would be so interesting to start in this gothic haunted town of Hollywood with these two people who these two characters who are characters within movies and then move them to someplace like San Francisco which was just just having so many people from all over the country really pouring into it that summer and really seeing how they would both fit in and not fit in and how that experience would be for them in this very ever-changing time.
0: It is interesting isn't it how much we are seeing that tumultuousness again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it feels like we've had 30 years of complacency and now it's like mm-hmm. oh no no the, the fight's not over we just need to pick it up again and because these things haven't changed um and i always think the 60s in popular culture has that kind of sort of schizophrenic duality of it's it's both a time of like rose-tinted flower power you know you look back mm-hmm. and think wasn't it is it wasn't it innocent wasn't it lovely and also christ it was the fight for a lot of people's lives yeah. um and san francisco feels like the focal point of that because all the hippie stuff that you kind of all the detail in all the the, the like the, the the house shares and the bed sits and the festivals and it does have a frightening feel to it you, you don't really spend too much time with peace and love in this mm-hmm. you know you present a cynical is the wrong word but i suppose quite a frayed chaotic sense of of the summer of love and, and of 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 the hippie lifestyle.
1: Yeah. You know, when I was younger and when I was first researching the 1960s, I did kind of think of it more as being, Oh, peace and love. And, mm-hmm. and there is that, that it's not that there wasn't that element involved with it, but it was very, it was fraught. It was difficult. You know, a lot of, I always think it's funny when you, when you see like, say around, like in a costume shop or around Halloween, if you see a 1960s costume, it's going to be a big peace sign and some bell bottoms. And like the model on, on the costume is going to be holding up that peace sign. And it just makes it look like, oh, it was so easy. It was so fun. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it was very difficult. And, and when you read accounts, like sort of boots on the ground account or bare feet on the ground accounts, because a lot of people were, you know, had, had bare feet. You know, a lot of it was that it was gritty. It was very gritty. I I read uh, Patty Boyd's, um, George Harrison's first wife. She was a model and uh, inspiration for a lot of songs. She and George Harrison went to the Summer of Love, went to San Francisco that summer, and she wrote about it in her memoir and said, it was very dirty. They were not expecting it to be sort of what it was. It was much grittier than they were expecting. Now, obviously, they were very rich at that point, so it was probably, you know, not at all what they were used to. But, it, you know, it was interesting to see somebody who was, like, very much associated with the 1960s because, you know, um, several of the Beatles songs are about her and, you know, she was she was a model at the time, so she was very much part of the kind of that 60s scene and, like, she went to the Summer of Love and it, she doesn't spend that much time in the memoir but. She spends a couple pages being like, whoa, this is not what we expected it to be at all. And although if you want to talk cynical, I don't think there's a much more cynical author at times than Joan Didion. Some of her accounts of The Summer of Love were also interesting because they also had this kind of very gritty feel to it. And so and even if you watch some of the documentaries that were made, you know, it does have this very, you know, it it was an intense time. And a lot of people were fighting for things. And then some people weren't. I think that was probably the most interesting thing. That I've really learned over the years is that some people just wanted to go to San Francisco to just hang out, to just yeah. do drugs and party. Not everybody was there wanting social change. Like there were, there were absolutely people who did. There was the the free clinic there. There was a a free store there. There was a lot of people who were very very concerned about trying to to really change the world, you know, in a positive way. But some people really weren't, you know. And you just see some people that were just there. They're like, I just want to come and party. And so it was really a very, it was very frayed. Like you said, it was a very fragmented group of people. They weren't all there. Like uh, they weren't all there to hold up signs and protest and, and try to make the world a better place. Some definitely, definitely were, but some were just like, I just want to party. So you had a lot of people with a lot of different goals at the same place, which is kind of one of the reasons why a lot of people said that it, it, it ultimately, you know, it only lasted a summer by the fall pretty much everybody had left. You also have to remember some of these people only came there, you know, it was their summer between college semesters, right? Like some of these were college students that it's like, they finished up their semester, they went to San Francisco for a summer and then they just went back to college. So it was like, you know, there was definitely that element too, as to why it only lasted one summer, but it definitely has this really unique feel. And so many people there are transients and so many people there, you know, could disappear easily if there is a vampire, because, you know, maybe some of their families don't know where they are, or even if they do, they don't know exactly where they are in San Francisco. It really would be a situation in which, you know, characters like Dracula or Rochester, as as I sort of imagined them in this book, could get away with a lot of terrible things and people wouldn't be able to catch them right away or even realize what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Well, to make a really weird comparison, it, it's kind of like the Chicago World's Fair in the mm. 1800s when,
1: Yes. You know, H.H.
0: H. Holmes, the serial killer, was mm-hmm. was playing his trade because he could, because people came from all over and no one knew who they were or where they were or or anything. And it, yeah, it, it does feel like you've got Rochester and Dracula on the outskirts of this, just preying mm-hmm. on people. Um, yes. And it's also weird that that LA West Coast scene, because they're surrounded by young girls mm-hmm. and it, it's obviously creepy. And at times... It almost feels like you're satirizing the power and the, I don't know, the the, the paper thin charm of a studio head or a movie director and the way that those kind of powerful figures prey on young women in that part of the world.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and that's something that you know we still haven't fixed. This is you know we're we're sixty years we're sixty five years later, and we still haven't fixed that idea of like a studio head or or a director having that kind of power. So yeah, absolutely, there's definitely a reflection of of that dynamic in there as well.
0: Wow. So that, well, that that brings us with a swift handbrake turn into some of the more serious stuff in this book because. With all this talk of intertextuality and shared universes, and particularly with the with the cover, which is this gorgeous kind of you know bright pinks and purples and greens, <laughs> and the UK cover, which looks like something similar to the, to the, the a poster from the film Almost Famous. You know, yes. it'd be very easy to come to this book expecting like a quirky pastiche or a sort of horror version of the Marvel crossover movies, you know, mm-hmm. something ironic. But in reality, Reluctant Immortals is, it's overtly concerned with some really serious topics like around gender and violence and exploitation. And I suppose as a broad question, what are your thoughts on that, on, on pursuing those subjects with a type of story that usually trends towards the wry and the glib?
1: I mean, that was something that I definitely thought of, like this this could just be something of a very easy, fun mashup. And I do think it works on that level to a great degree, at least I hope it does. But at the same time, the, the main overarching idea I had for the book was about reclaiming women's lost stories, because women's stories get lost so easily, so quickly, and it's just it's just like a flick of a wrist. Like it's so easy for us to lose the, the stories of women. It just is something that happens. And so to want to get to that through these characters and also to try to balance it, to not make it be something super somber, because I think that, you know, when you're doing a mashup, you do have to at least have a little bit of fun with it. I think that if, if it's too serious, then it's like, you know, like you said, people are going to come to it and be like, whoa, this is, this is a little bit, you know, more intense than than I was expecting. So it really was trying to balance that and say, you know, how can I reclaim these two characters' narratives, and you know, make that commentary about how often this does happen in real life, while still having it be, you know, kind of like a horror adventure story and sort of that, that you know, feel of a Hammer movie.
0: Yeah, because it is—it never feels like a, an exercise in 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 metaphor or a, you know an overt polemic, but I think it is important that that readers who might be put off by what they think of as, you know, potentially a bit lightweight, it's really not. You are, you are getting to real grips with some substance in this, um, and more and more so as the book progresses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about, you know, San Fran and L.A. and, and the, the 60s, but it does seem to me that so much of this book is explicitly relevant to the last decade, Mm-hmm. that we've just had you know to fourth wave feminism and and me too and this new heightened awareness of of violence towards women it, it is hard to read all of that stuff as unintentional
1: yeah i mean that that definitely was was being brought into it and i was thinking a lot about the me too movement and thinking about you know a lot of what the me too movement is about is making voices heard that have always been silenced i mean that that is sort of the the main overarching point is to try to say, hey, these are, these are people's voices. These are women who have been silenced and aren't allowed to speak the truth. And so many women have had that experience. And so really keeping that in mind as I was writing this, and it just felt like, to me, it felt like this was the right moment to tell this story because this is something that's on so many of our minds. I know it's on my mind all the time, every day. And it felt like this, these were characters that I could really talk about that and and they're recognizable characters. So it's not like I'm just creating two new characters that maybe don't have that kind of connection to culture or that kind of baggage that goes with them and being able to say, let's flip this and let's look at this and let's say, you know, how does this relate to power dynamics that we're still dealing with and that we're still trying to fight back against?
0: Yeah, power dynamics is very much the word I would use. Um, it is very much it's patriarchy, isn't it? In all, in in, yeah. in red in tooth and claw, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found really kind of noteworthy is how often in this book women are turned against other women, mm-hmm. because Rochester, uh, Roche, excuse me, Rochester and Dracula kind of amass this small army of, <laughs> of very young girls, and they then they turn them against B and Lucy as kind mm-hmm. of weapons. And I wondered, is that a metaphor? or a response to something that you're seeing in in our culture currently?
1: I do think, unfortunately, that is a thing that 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 can happen is that powerful men will try to, you know, turn women against each other. They'll try to be like, oh, don't 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 you know that I'm on your side? They'll say, you know, the kind of like the women. They almost use as shields that they'll Mm. they'll be very nice to certain women. So that way they can be like, look, I have all these female friends. And so then it makes it so it's very hard for women to be able to say no, just because that guy is really nice to you. He's doing all of these awful things to other women. And it makes it so, you know, then there's that dynamic dynamic of of people who don't want to kind of go against somebody that they that they trust but that they can't see clearly because that person again is using them as a shield is using them as somebody who can you know, who they can then use as an excuse of like, look, I really do support women because I supported these women. But it's like, meanwhile, you know, they're behind the scenes sexually harassing a lot of other women. I think a lot about Harvey Weinstein, because it's like, before everything came out with Me Too, a lot of people would talk about, you know, he was such a philanthropist. He did give millions of dollars to lots of social causes. And it's like, that was what he was known for. At a certain point, he was known for being, you know, very gruff, but also being this, you know, this great, you know, don't made all these donations to to all these great causes. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, that in a lot of ways, that was his way of trying to cover what he was actually doing. And it sounds so cynical, because I don't think everybody who's trying to do the right thing overtly is really doing terrible things behind the scenes. But very often, that can happen that there's like this, again, this shield or this veneer of like, look, I'm a really nice guy, you can trust me. And then it, you know, it does end up pitting women against women at times.
0: Well, it's the same in the UK with Jimmy Savile. I mean, I don't know how much people mm-hmm. are aware of him in the US, but you know, like a, a massive, massive amounts of fame in the in the seventies and eighties, and it was all hiding the most egregious sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And again, he was known as a philanthropist, a mm-hmm. a, a good man, a charitable figure, and exactly, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's it's that veneer. And It's funny you mentioned Weinstein, because when I was um, reading this book, I just kept thinking, going back to that thing about media moguls and people in power, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking of Rochester and Dracula as Weinstein and Epstein, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just knocking around in LA up to their worst. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, in a weird way with these young girls who are weaponized against our heroines, it's kind of like celebrity, you know, because they go to these parties where Rochester is holding forth and he, he just appears, he has the same kind of role in that in that situation as a celebrity putting on a party and all of these groupies and fans mm-hmm. are so happy to come to his defence. And it made me think and this might be controversial because I know people have very, very different opinions on this but made me think of the all the stuff with Johnny Depp recently
1: mm-hmm. where,
0: you know, regardless of what's going on and if I'm honest, I haven't followed it all that intensely but the amount of women I've seen attacking Amber Heard, mm-hmm. and you know, in the most horrendous ways. I haven't read that many men attacking her. I'm sure there mm. are. Um, yeah. I'm sure there are, there are many, but you know, some really vociferous voices from from women attacking Amber Heard. I'm thinking, like, my God, this is this is the schism that's being waged against you, you know. And it, it really feels like you're taking that on in this book a lot. However, you know, slight the metaphor might be.
1: Yeah, I mean that's obviously all much more recent stuff, like that yeah. you know, especially the trial aspect of of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. So that 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 didn't necessarily inform the book, but mm-hmm. it, you're absolutely correct. It, a lot of what I've seen online is mostly women attacking her, and so it is very and it's very scary when you think you guys don't know Johnny Depp personally, and they go and they wait outside the courtroom, and it's like that's very it it's scary to me that people want to get so involved in a. In, with these celebrities in this way that like, you don't know what happened. You you weren't there in the room no matter mm-hmm. what. And like, you know, it is scary. It, it's frightening to see, you know, that weaponization of especially women against women. And I feel like that's such a part of the patriarchy. It's such a part of how the patriarchy continues to work. It's because, you know, it's not just men who are doing this to women. It, it's often getting women as the foot soldiers to hurt other women with this, I almost this promise of, you know, well, you'll be one of the good women that will treat right. And that's just so, so scary to me, because that's that that like, so many of us, even in ways that maybe we don't realize can be complicit in that, you know, we can all be complicit in doing that to some extent, hopefully, most of us less so than others, but it is scary. It does feel like this entire system is built this way. And it it just keeps replicating itself over and over again.
0: Oh, yeah, completely. It just feels worrying to me that you've got a lot of people, you know, almost treating a case about domestic abuse, regardless of what has actually gone on, it shouldn't be treated lightly. It shouldn't be a thing that is contested on TikTok, you know, yes. and I find yes. like exactly what you said. It, it is the the power of the pa- patriarch. It's, it's the ability to wield people as weapons. Mm-hmm. I find it, you know, yeah, I, I, it is chilling to watch in action, regardless of who in this individual case is guilty or not, because quite frankly, I don't know. Um what I've seen from the behaviour of onlookers is terrifying. To to stay with abuse, which is an unpleasant sentence to say, um, in terms of the gender dynamics in this book, I think the thing that I found the most fascinating of of all of it, but also the most distressing to read, is that you really cement what has been a, you know, centuries-old implication linking vampirism with sex specifically mm-hmm. sexual assault mm-hmm. now that's always been the case you know he, he literally yeah. comes into your bedroom and, and 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 ravages you but dracula's bite is obviously like a penetration that's mm-hmm. yeah, obvious but what's often overlooked and i only say this because i've written on this in the past is the act of dracula forcing his victims to drink his own blood and it's mm-hmm. a kind of you know, symbolic and enforce fellatio, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's, there's one scene in this book that made me kind of like sort of sit up. Um, it, and and I, I'm assuming you are going for this, you're that you're going for this comparison because I want to quote the book for a second. There's a, there's a, a part when Dracula confronts Lucy and she also almost submits to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, because he's trying to get to drink his blood and he says, it's all right. And he threads his fingers through my hair pressing softly on the back of my neck, forcing me towards him. My eyes sting with tears, but I part my lips ready to get this over with. Now, that feels like a a very clear reference to a certain kind of sexual assault. And I wonder if you can talk a little about literalizing Dracula and Rochester as kind of out-and-out abusers.
1: Yeah, so... That, that, uh, and you started reading that, I'm like, oh, this scene, because that like was so uncomfortable to write. Mm. But at the same time, I'm like, that is something that I really wanted to come into this book and be like, what they do is a form of sexual assault. And that that's what it is. And and that, like you said, vampirism is such a metaphor for sex to begin with. And so really just saying, okay, let's make this explicit. Let's actually talk about this. And with these particular characters and with the idea that their stories have been deleted and that some of that is the patriarchy, some of it is powerful men, but some of it also has to do with the sexual assault of it, whether it's supernatural form of sexual assault or not, that that's still very much, you know, what is happening. And so writing, writing that scene in particular, and it, it, like you said, it's a very specific form of, of sexual assault of like, she feels like there's no way out of that situation mm-hmm. in that moment. And so it, again, it's very, it's, it was very uncomfortable to write. And, you know, she, she does, she does, you know, extricate herself from that particular moment. But it, it was something that, you know, I did want to deal with. And I did want to say, you know, this is what's going on. And this is, you know, what she's fighting against, but also, you know, what, you know, the whole world, you know, the whole society, even within the kind of the supernatural construct is, is constantly putting her in this position where this could happen all the time and how scary that is for her and how much she's doing everything she can to try to break down this system. So this isn't how it's going to be for her, but it's also not going to be like that for anyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's quite a triumphant story in the end. There, there's one part where where Jane Eyre actually decides to do something because she's been kind of back and forth with is she good or is she corrupted or I even mean, there's one point where she decides to do something and and Lucy says I you know she and, and she looked like the girl she used to be. Mm-hmm. And I found that quite moving because they do overcome and and they the, you know mm-hmm. it's not a small to say they do they are victorious over some of this stuff and it <laughs> it is a, a, a Pump moment. But you mentioned sort of that being uncomfortable to write, and I'm going to ask quite an uncomfortable question. And I'm going to be very careful how I ask this, because it's very easy to to give the wrong sense of what I mean. Um, In that quote I just read to you, I actually left out one statement for rhetorical purposes, because Lucy doesn't just say that Dracula was forcing me towards him, she also says, forcing me towards what he knows that I want. Ah. Yeah. Now, vampire fiction has always played with that idea of desire and terror being intermingled. Mm -hmm. But you've updated the myth to fit a really modern feminist, progressive context, right? Which is commendable. Mm -hmm. Yet Lucy's sort of, she has a genuine hunger for Dracula's blood. Yes. Which she can't overcome. It's It's a physical imperative. Mm -hmm. And he has this ability to cast a spell over his victims and put them in Mm -hmm. thrall to him. Mm -hmm. Surely that imperative and that spell brings this kind of inescapable sense Mm -hmm. of desire from the victim that is really problematic in these more enlightened times.
1: It it is. It definitely is. And that was a big thing as I was writing this of like, how do you write this idea of what we understand with vampirism is there is a lot of times this desire from the victim. And how do you deal with that? because that is a thing that in many versions of of Dracula especially the film versions that there is this push and pull of like you know wanting to be drawn in but wanting to be away from 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 the vampire and that was something that I very much went into it and I I was very I tried to be very careful with it but at the same time recognize it you know and there's also the character of Michael throughout that Lucy inadvertently puts under her thrall mm-hmm. she actually she's attracted to him And she accidentally, because this just sort of can happen, and then dealing with the fallout of that and trying to actually parse out this idea of, like you said, the inevitability of some of these elements in vampire legends, but also saying, do we want to call this inevitable? Because in some ways that treats then sexual assault like it's inevitable, which it obviously is not inevitable. And trying to parse that out in a way that, It does get, again, into thorny ground. It's thorny issues of saying, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about the vampire? How do we deal with the elements of sexual assault that are involved? How do we also deal with desire? And some of it, I think, can come down to the fact, and this gets into really uncomfortable territory, that sometimes somebody is, you know, sexually assaulted by somebody that they were attracted to, but they didn't want to have sex with them at that moment. Or they didn't want to have sex with them in that way. And, you know, it was, it's, it's not a lack of desire all the time. Sometimes it is that I want to be able to have my boundaries because I have a right as a human being to have boundaries. For a long time, I know in America, there, man, and this is getting really, really sad topics of conversation for a long time. We we didn't have any marital rape laws because the idea was as a woman, if you're in a marriage, then of course you want to have sex with your with your husband. And that's obviously not true. And so it took a long time, I think, here for us to even be able to recognize that marital rape can happen because we have this idea that every single sexual assault is some stranger in, in a dark alley and that it's never somebody that maybe you do love or maybe you do trust and maybe you did consent to have sex with them at one point, but you didn't today. And that's all that matters. It's, it's you know, with Lucy and dealing with that, it was very hard because it was like she is drawn to Dracula, whether because of the thrall he put on her. or Maybe she would have been attracted anyways, but she doesn't want him to do what he's doing to her. There can still be this desire for him, but also saying, but I don't want it to go this far. I don't, I, I have these boundaries because I have a right to have these boundaries as a human being. I can be drawn to you. I can be attracted to you. I can even, you know, say that I'm attracted to you, but that doesn't mean you can just take anything you want from me. And having that idea of, you know, people are allowed to say I'm I'm attracted to this person, but they can't do this to me.
0: That's a very good answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I, I kept thinking that It was one thing to write this stuff in 1897, when let's be honest, largely speaking, we didn't really think about these things as rape. We thought it as you know, we thought about it as in an entirely different, uglier context. Um, Mm. And I I was thinking, like, you know, how once we've recontextualized the sexual act, that then Mm. does inevitably make all the, the the stuff around all the metaphor way more problematic it, it does you are right you you can have desire on the part of the bit of the victim without it victim blaming in the moment yeah that's mm-hmm. the um that's a better way to engage with that topic i suppose yeah
1: yeah and something that i don't feel like we're at yet as a society and we need to be is having more nuanced conversations about sexual assault because again it usually is treated as you know, you're going to be attacked in a back alley or you're mm-hmm. going to be drugged. And that happens. Those things happen. I don't want to diminish that. That absolutely happens. But when you look at it, a lot of times, the, you know, the victims know the, the abuser. They know them. And, you know, that, that's still, me- most sexual assaults are not in a situation where it is somebody that maybe they're attracted to. The victim is attracted to anyways. I still think the bulk of sexual assaults still happen, you know, in, in, in different contexts. But I think the ones we struggle with the most as a society are the ones where we're like, oh, you know, they, they were dating this person. So how could they possibly have been assaulted? Or you'll see these really ugly cases where they'll have broken up and, you know, they had dated and presumably had had a sexual relationship. And then, you know, the, the perpetrator rapes, or sexually assaults the victim. And then it's like people have trouble being able to understand that that can still happen just because the victim... Consented one day does not mean they consent the next day. And then it gets even more difficult that there are times that then the victim will maybe continue to be in a relationship with this person afterwards. And then people are like, well, it couldn't have been sexual assault before. And it's like, It absolutely could have been. Again, like going back to those marital rape laws, like you could stay in a relationship. There could be a lot of reasons. Maybe it's because of the abuse and there's just this cycle of abuse going on. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people stay in abusive relationships. But this idea of oh well if she stayed in a relationship and I'm saying she, it obviously is not always in those gender dynamics, but for the sake of this conversation and the book, that that's how I'm just talking about it, but oh, if she stayed in the relationship, then obviously it couldn't be sexual assault, but it could still absolutely be sexual assault.
0: Yeah, the marital rape laws in, in the UK, um, horrifyingly, it, it was not an offence before 1992.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's probably about where it is with with just, America as well. It's it's not. We did not have good like laws to be able yeah. to protect people at all. Like it just was something that people can. I think still people are like, oh, this can't happen. Yes, it can happen. It happens all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, moving on from what is potentially quite triggering and apologies, <laughs> yes. um, but it has yes. to be talked about because it's the, you know it's the, it's the real meat of the novel. Um, B. Bertha, <laughs> she has a much less complex relationship with Rochester yes. than Lucy yes. with Dracula. She just fucking hates him. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I, and I I quite like that I I enjoyed the the balance of that um but we haven't talked much about B and we haven't got that long left but you do give us this really cool sort of supernatural backstory to B and Rochester and their mm-hmm. immortality and their bond and you don't have to go into into too much detail if you think it's a spoiler but was that entirely of your own imagination or is there something in Jane Eyre that I'm just forgetting about?
1: mostly you know from from my imagination but i do find it interesting that you when you read a lot of criticism about jane eyre you do have people who bring in that there's not overtly supernatural elements, but there's almost at times suggestions of supernatural elements, that they're kind of very oblique, but that, that that is something that you can almost imagine. I think there's even people who say that, you know, Bertha is almost described as being like a vampire. And so even though in mine, I decided not to go in that direction, I, I wanted to have different ways of being immortal. I didn't want everyone to be a vampire. I liked the idea of it being different ways, but... With, without giving too much of a spoiler, I, I thought it would be really great to have it all be about that attic, that that attic in particular where Bertha is kept in Jane Eyre does have a, a certain power over everyone because it is such a powerful place within the original novel. And I thought it would be really interesting to be able to use that as sort of the epicenter of, of how they end up becoming immortal.
0: Yeah, and it, it gives some nice sort of icky body horror elements to things as well, which was a nice little nice little touch on top of everything else. Um, well, actually, you know, we started, I'm thinking on my feet now, which is not always good, but we started with a question connecting this book to your earlier work, okay, with the short stories. Let's end the same way, because talking about that thing that Bertha has and also certain elements of Lucy's immortality, mm mm-hmm they're basically plagued by this rot kind of Mm -hmm. objects around them start to deteriorate quite fast. Mm -hmm. And like I say, connecting it back to earlier stuff, the girls in your first novel, The Russ Maidens, also have this very particular relationship with rot and decay. Now, not to get too Freudian, but is there something you're returning to in that idea? What's going on?
1: Definitely. I, I think because I grew up in the Rust Belt in Ohio, that it's just like rot and decay are are kind of everywhere. And honestly, I feel like they're pretty much everywhere in America now. I feel like we are, we physically are, are a country of a lot of decay. There's just a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of abandoned factories, you know, our infrastructure is not the best. And so I feel like that's such an American idea and so you know both those books you know The Rust Mains takes place in Ohio Reluctant Immortals takes place in California but I feel like they are very American books I think be that as it is, you know, I'm a very American writer. I very much write in America and I write with the things I've seen and the things I've experienced here. And there is a lot of rot, there is a lot of decay. And some of it is a kind of spiritual or moral decay that we're, we're going through now more than ever here in America. And so I feel like, you know, that that physical representation of the decay is very much being reflected, you know, politically and socially in what, what we're going through. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's something that I just always return to. And it's something that I feel is so omnipresent.
0: Well, that's cool because it it does kind of work on a thematic level because this book is all about things ending, isn't it? You know, it's mm-hmm. the end of the Hollywood studio system, the end of the mm-hmm. summer of love, the end of hippydom, basically, the end of mm-hmm. like the sixties and the promise and and um, yeah, and that and that rot and decay and deterioration kind of ties in nicely with mm-hmm. that. So yeah, that that does work. I just wondered because I thought that's that's two books now about things falling around. Uh-huh. falling to pieces around the young women what well, something's going on um, <laughs> listen i i also read that reluctant immortals is the first of a two book deal with saga is that it true is.
1: yes it is
0: well congratulations and the obvious question can you tell us anything about what the second book will be
1: Uh, It's totally unrelated to this one. It is about a haunted neighborhood and the uh, the girls that got out of the neighborhood. And now many years later, they have to deal with the fact that this neighborhood is a literal ghost that is haunting the town.
0: So let me get this right. It's a book about some young kids who live in a haunted place and they leave and then they come back as adults to deal with that haunting influence. Do you have a working title for it or an idea? We can no,
1: I'm not. I'm not talking about the working title yet because I think it's going to <laughs> okay. change. And like I normally am pretty proud of my titles, but the title for this one, I'm going to have to talk to my editor and be like, I think I think I can do better than that. So okay. no, no official title yet.
0: <laughs> cool. Uh, well, whilst we're on other books, can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why?
1: Yes, I would recommend the collection Something Borrowed, Something Blood Soaked by Krista Carmen. It's about four years old now, but I absolutely love it. It's it's my favorite collection that's come out over the last few years. It's got such a great variety of horror stories in it. I think Krista is such a great author. So it came out from Unnerving. I believe it's still in print right now, but get a copy because it might come out, it might fall out of print. I feel like a lot of our small press writers are having their books come and go out of print. Like another book I love, but it just went out of print, was To Be Devoured by Sarah Tantlinger. And so that that's a great one too. So either one of those, if you can get a copy of them.
0: Okay, that's, that sounds cool. I haven't heard of Krista Carmen, and I always like new names. Um, and I always think collections are good ways to get into new authors, so I, I will check that I one think. out, definitely. Yeah, That sounds great. Um my last question, Gwendolyn. I ask everyone this, but what truly scares you?
1: The loss of self, losing who you are, either to the world or to circumstance or to time.
0: Wow, that's an existential one. <laughs> right back at the start, Paul Tremblay said sharks, but this is look how far we've come. Wow. Okay. I don't think. We'll, I think we'll leave that there before we. Uh, go on a whole thing you kind of taking me aback a little bit with that it was such a such a concise complete answer i'm a little bit rattled <laughs> <laughs> i i love this book i think it was just so much as i said already it was so much fun and it managed to both entertain me and make me really think about some issues as i think has come clear in the absolute needless complexity of my questions uh, so thank you for indulging that I, i'm not sure it was the most articulate i've ever been in my life um, <laughs> It's out August 23rd, and people will no doubt flock to buy it. Before you go, I have a long-term listener called Jesse Richards, who has been like a supporter of this show from the very start. And he loves your book. He he has talked (laughs) to me at length. I've had all the DMs about how good Reluctant Immortals is. He managed to read it before me, which pissed me off, but nonetheless... It's Jesse's birthday tomorrow, the 24th of August, on the day this book goes out. Um, Could you join me in wishing him the very, very happiest of birthdays?
1: Absolutely. Happy birthday, Jesse. I hope it's an awesome, awesome day.
0: Happy birthday, Jesse. I can't do any better than that. (laughs) But, But thank you, Gwendolyn. Listen, thank you so much for your time and your patience with my questions. And thank you for talking scared.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful.
0: So I didn't expect to lead off that chat with This Is Us. Seriously, though, have any of you watched it? I'm obsessed. It's basically a Springsteen song in TV form, and it's one of the best human dramas I've seen in years. For those who don't know, and, and I am always behind the times on this stuff. I've still not even started watching Sandman. I never finished Breaking Bad. So, yeah, do not. if I say for those who don't know, I generally mean me. But for those who don't know, it's basically a multi-generational drama about an American family. And though the stakes never get that high, it confronts a lot of contemporary issues. But it's just lovely. See, not everything I consume is horror or even dark. I'm a real sentimentalist when it comes to fiction, though weirdly not in real life. That said, it's not horror by any means, but This Is Us does really drive home the idea of mortality and ageing in a way that has got me and my wife completely freaked out. And mortality obviously is a big theme of Gwendolyn's novel. Like I said, the cover and even a synopsis at face value could give you the wrong idea, This is a frothy, fluffy confection. When in fact, it's a dark tale about the weight of living forever with your trauma. And that's a weird balance, actually, because I think I've made it sound too dark there. You know what? Just read it and and judge for yourself, because I think Gwendolyn's balanced it just right. It's both massively enjoyable and insightful about all the problematic shit that we just talked about. And I do think we manage that stuff quite well. I know I was nervous asking some of those questions because it's so easy to say the wrong thing or the boorish thing or the ill-considered thing or the thing that gets you cancelled off Twitter, insert, you know, And, and Gwendolyn was very open to my questions and very, very nice about the fact that I wasn't all that articulate this week. I think because of my nerves about some of the topics, but... But yeah, we got through and I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope you now want to read the book even more because you definitely should. And speaking of books, I've been head down in mine all week, guys, because I'm writing this big, big thing about Stephen King and I'm currently about 60% of the way through and I've already written 7,000 words. So who knows when that'll be finished? (laughs) Hopefully you'll see it soon and, and hopefully so will he. And also, talking of famous authors, you may have seen the exciting news that I posted that Margaret Atwood has agreed to come on the show next year. Margaret Atwood. (laughs) This is frankly ludicrous, and I'm going to imagine that it falls through at each and every point before we actually record. The weirdest thing is, I've been having a sort of ongoing Twitter DM chat with Margaret for the last few weeks since she followed me on Twitter. Can you imagine the pressure of writing a DM to Margaret freaking Atwood? Honestly, my nerves are shot. Speaking of Twitter, etc., you can find me there and on Instagram at TalkScaredPod. I'm currently doing a giveaway of Chuck Wendig's new book, Wayward. It's a massive thing, and it's a follow-up to Wanderers. And Chuck will be on the show in November to talk about it, and you can win a copy three months early. So go to Twitter, find the top post, I think it's pinned there, and enter. And you can also email me with questions, praise, criticism, or just to say hi at Talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Lastly, if you'd like more Talking Scared, just sign up to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes, or go to patreon.com slash Talkingscaredpod. There's loads of stuff there. I just recorded a deep dive into House of Leaves with Rain King, And I'll be doing a in-depth chat about California Gothic with eminent scholar and ex-colleague of mine, Bernice Murphy. That was inspired by this episode, actually, that's, you know, all about the scary corners of California. So, yeah, plenty of ways to get in touch, get engaged and support the show. I'm back next week with Zinni Rocklin talking dystopian sea stories and eldritch horrors in Flowers for the Sea. That book came out last year and it's very short, so you may have a chance to get it and read it by next week. That's then. For now, pass the pipe, do the fish cheer and make love, not war. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.